Tonight's talk is about being with emotions with kind-hearted awareness. So I'd like to start with a little uh, quote from the time of the Buddha, from a collection of discourses called the Samyutta Nikaya. And there's a Brahmin named Jata who's asking the Buddha this question. The inner tangle and the outer tangle, this generation is entangled in a tangle. And so I ask of the Buddha this question, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? Seems like it may still be relevant. The Buddha replies, when a wise one trained in virtue develops heart and understanding, then as a way seeker, ardent and wise, he or she succeeds in disentangling this tangle. When a wise one trained in virtue, that's the um, principle of non-harming and the precepts, for example. When a wise one trained in virtue develops heart and understanding, then he or she succeeds in disentangling this tangle. I find it somewhat comforting that uh, 2,600 years ago they were asking questions that are similar to the questions we might have in our own heart. How do we disentangle this tangle? And the reason why I find it comforting is that so often when we have confusion in our hearts and our minds, our difficult emotions, we assume that there's something wrong with us, that we're doing something wrong, that we're defective in some way. But actually, we're just coming face to face with the human predicament, with an existential human predicament. And it's been around a while, even the question being asked 2,600 years ago. Perhaps that can help us have a little bit of compassion and kindness towards ourselves when this happens. A number of years ago, the Dalai Lama gave a talk at Smith College that I was lucky enough to attend. And somebody asked him this question. They asked, what's the most important thing in life? And his answer uh, surprised me for several reasons. One reason, he said, well, it depends on who you are. He said, if you're a businessman, maybe the most important thing is to make money. And if you're a college student, maybe the most important thing is to graduate and find a partner that you want for life. And he said, if you are a serious Dharma practitioner, the most important thing is learning how to work with afflictive emotions. So it sounds a little bit uh, central. Afflictive emotions are emotions that disturb the peace of mind, the ones that cause us suffering. Pema Chodron says, If your everyday practice is to open to all your emotions, to all the people you meet, to all the situations you encounter without closing down, trusting that you can do that, then that will take you as far as you can go. And then you'll understand all the teachings that anyone has ever taught. So these afflictive emotions are the ones that block the natural radiance of our heart and our mind. 
Yesterday, Greg said such a beautiful statement in his talk. He was saying, like, after you kind of clear through all the muck and the, and the stuff, he said, what, what remains in the heart is kindness. That's, that's like the innate quality of our heart and our mind. And so the afflictive emotions are what cloud or, or cover up that beauty of our hearts and our minds. The afflictive emotions fall under a couple of main categories. Uh, very commonly, the main categories of greed are wanting and not wanting. And you hear us talk about this a lot. They're really, in many ways, wanting and not wanting are just ways that we try to protect the heart. We try to protect the heart from the impermanence that he was talking about last night, too, the uncontrollability of life. And we hope somehow through wanting and not wanting that we can manage this universe, that it will be bearable. But the problem is there's a price. There's a high price for this wanting and not wanting. And the price is, is, that, is the closing down of the heart. So maybe there's another way we can um, find peace in life. Working with these afflictive emotions and then is really important in the opening of the heart. Our ability to touch life and be touched by life. Our ability to live with the most spacious and free heart and mind possible. So the paradox a bit of practice is that we talk a lot about accepting all of our experience, that anything that is happening is okay. Anything that is happening is worthy of our attention. Our awareness can be our object of practice, right? But then on the other hand, it's quite obvious that we wish or that it's skillful to increase wholesome emotions in the heart and mind, such as metta and compassion and calm, peace, and to decrease afflictive emotions such as anger, fear, greed, lust, loneliness, irritation. So it seems like there's a kind of a paradox between what we say about the accepting and then this kind of obvious truth that, that uh, for peace of mind and to bring peace into the world, it's more helpful to have wholesome emotions rather than afflictive ones. But there really is not a a problem with this paradox because the way that we increase wholesome emotions and decrease unwholesome emotions or unhelpful or afflictive emotions is through mindfulness and acceptance. So when we talk about afflictive emotions, which is most of my talk tonight, The way that you could say we decrease afflictive emotions is through mindful, kind awareness and acceptance. And what we do is we're not trying to get rid of the afflictive emotions, but rather we're trying to see through them so that they lose their power over us. And mindfulness is what gives us a hope to be able to do that. So tonight we're going to be talking about finding freedom from being seduced, ensnared, and disturbed by our emotions while not having to 
reject any part of our human experience. So first, it's helpful to get over the idea that that there's something wrong if we're feeling something. My first interview, uh, or one of my first interviews I had here, no, my first retreat, long retreat I did here, about 10 days into the retreat, uh, I got overwhelmed with lots of emotions. I tended up to that point to be a repressor. That was how I dealt with emotions. And I just got slammed. Every emotion, afflictive emotion in the book is how it felt to me. And so I went into this interview I had with Joseph Goldstein. I went in and I was, I was like... And I feel sad and lonely and angry and afraid. And I I can't remember, but it was a lot. It was a list of at least 10 afflictive emotions. I was, you know, and I was like really upset. And so he listens to me and then he says, what's the problem? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like one of the best teachings for me. I was like, (laughs) you mean there isn't a problem? (laughs) He's like, no, you'll be okay. Just go take a walk. And, uh, you know, and it was so mind and heart opening for me to just have that reflected back to me, that attitude of acceptance and kindness. Just let it be. I had never considered that there might not be a problem. So we all have our favorite afflictive emotion or two or three. Um, Mine's always been fear. Fear's been a huge part of my practice, learning how to work with it, especially in the early years. And usually with our favorite afflictive emotion, we assume that what we need to do is get rid of it. That's, that's, we just start there, right? So fear, have to get rid of it. But really our greatest challenges especially around afflictive emotions, are our greatest teachers. And they seem to have so much to do with softening the heart and helping us to be able to connect to others who suffer. Rumi, the famous Sufi mystic, said, everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. (laughs) And it's like these places that, that are so painful that we wish to get rid of, they're actually, they help us connect with humanity, our own, and with others. They help us to develop compassion and kindness. So let's talk a little bit about how to work with afflictive emotions skillfully. And before we do that, let's look at how we usually deal with them uh, when there isn't mindfulness. And there's two basic strategies that we usually, or I wouldn't call them strategies, they're kind of fallbacks that we use when there's no mindfulness. So we'll either drown in afflictive emotions or we'll repress them to extremes. So drowning in afflictive emotion means that we get lost in the story. In Buddhist terminology, we say that we identify with the emotion. We identify with the thoughts, which means that we believe them. And we lose perspective. We lose clarity. We create these, these entire worlds and universes so effectively that we inhabit them and we believe that they're real. 
It's really one of the most amazing wonders of the world how we can do that. Let's just say you're waiting in the lunch line and some yogi comes down the stairs and cuts in front of you, right? This is just an example. So there might be irritation, and then we might think, oh, that person is so self-centered. And who do they think they are? They think they're entitled. They think that they can just go whenever they want to. So that's the world we create, right? And we believe it. If we're caught in the anger and irritation, we will believe that story. We will really think that we know that person. It's amazing. And, and these stories are almost always stories of separation, right? And we might not consider if we're caught in an afflictive emotion. We might not consider perhaps that person's hypoglycemic and they really need to get some food. Or perhaps their mother died last week and they're really kind of a little bit in the clouds and they're not really seeing where they're going. There's so many possibilities, right? But when there's an afflictive emotion, we create a world and we absolutely believe it's true. You can see that's a little limiting. And it's also the potential for so much suffering for ourselves and for others. So that's drowning in emotion. The other extreme is to avoid them. We do everything we can to avoid feeling certain emotions. We try not to stop and face ourselves. Restlessness, distraction... We're really good at this in the, in, in, in the United States. You know, so much to do, so much busyness. I think so much of our busyness is because we don't want to feel. And it works somewhat temporarily, but, but the problem is that we know in our hearts that that's not peace, that that restlessness or edge or trying to avoid seeing who and what we are, including afflictive emotions, that there's no place, there's no rest there. Now, obviously, at times it can be helpful to repress emotions. If there's a certain place that you just have to get something done, at work perhaps, or whatever, yeah, there's some temporary benefit to it. But it's not a a long-term solution to not feel. Or another thing that we do is that we might edit out parts of ourselves that, that we find disagreeable, that don't keep with our image of ourselves. This is actually one of the spiritual tra- traps of spirituality is, um, I call it spiritual terrorism, when we, when we don't allow ourselves to feel certain things because we think it's not spiritual. A person came in to see me at some point in this retreat and she said, sometimes I feel hatred. I know that's not okay. And I said, sometimes I feel hatred too. It's just, it happens as humans, right? And so not to, uh, not to get down on ourselves when afflictive emotions arise. It's just part of a human life. I said I try not to feed it, obviously. I don't, you know, try to give a lot of energy to it. But, but it arises sometimes. So, it, drowning doesn't work so well. Repressing isn't a long-term solution. Mindful awareness is, is an option right in the middle between these two. And it's the ob- option of turning towards an afflictive emotion and experiencing it with mindfulness and kindness. So we actually, in practice, become intimate 
with afflictive emotions. Now, this might sound somewhat um, unpleasant or disagreeable or even terrifying, but what happens when we turn towards an emotion that we've been avoiding? Usually we find that it's much more manageable and transparent than we thought and that there's a huge relief in not running. There's a certain joy almost in being able to to meet whatever is there. So here are some very specific tips for working with mindfulness with afflictive emotions. And some of you who have meditated a long time probably have heard many instructions on working with emotions or being with emotions. I'm trying not to say working with emotions. It sounds so like so much work, (laughs) being with emotions. But but hopefully there will be something in here that will help you also. So first of all, it's really helpful if we can just name the emotion. So we can use some mental noting. Oh, anger, sadness, craving. It's said that if we label an emotion, it actually changes the part of the brain that uh, is activated. And it changes it from the amygdala, which is very primitive, uh, the primal brain, very fight-flight kind of brain, uh, to the frontal cortex, which actually has some reasoning capacity. (laughs) So it's great. but, But what's interesting is it has to be the right label. If you don't get the right label, it doesn't move it. I find that fascinating. So, so just labeling already gives us like um, a little bit of stability. And then it's really helpful to be with emotions in the body, to feel them physically. So we can check, are there corresponding physical sensations to that emotion? So, for example, if anger arises, we might feel tightness in the chest. We might feel heat. We might even feel our fists wanting to clench. And we can do this also with uh, wholesome emotions. Let's say happiness arises. We can be with that mindfully, too, in the body. So happiness, we might feel a certain sense of lightness or up, uplifting feeling in the body. So being with emotions physically is the most grounded way to do it. It's, the, it's actually the easiest way. If you feel physical sensations, not all people feel much physical sensation with emotions, but if you do, it's the easiest way to be with emotions with balance. Then notice how we experience the emotion in the mind. So body and mind. That's what an emotion is. It's really it's physical sensations and mental experience of thoughts, usually. So first you can just see, what is the texture in the mind? Is it dull or is it alert? Is it constricted or expansive? Flexible or inflexible? So there's a texture in the mind when, a, when an emotion's present. And then we can notice the kinds of thoughts that arise. We're actually not so interested in the specific story. We're more interested in what is an emotion. How does it arise? How does it pass away? What is the nature of an emotion, so to speak? So back to anger. Let's say anger is present. We may have thoughts of revenge or self-righteousness. 
And, and we can notice that there's these themes, and noticing that there's the themes helps us to be more aware of them rather than caught in them. So if fear is present, there might be thoughts of terrible things that are going to happen. For example... So we're really interested in the process of emotion, not the content. And we can notice with the thoughts, too, how much charge they have. We can notice that kind of sticky feeling with the thoughts, how much we want to believe them, how alluring they are. And we can remember with the thoughts that emotions tend to produce a distorted view of reality. So it can be helpful to know that, right? So we're in the middle of anger. Let's say we're angry at our partner, and we think, oh, what a jerk, why did he do that? And, and we paint this certain picture of him, him and then if we uh, remember how anger works, if we understand anger very well, we can go, oh, okay, anger's present. It's, it's distorting the view right now. I don't have to believe this view. So it's like we dehypnotize ourselves. That's what we're doing. Ajahn Chah again, since it seems to be an Ajahn Chah kind of retreat. He says, whenever you feel annoyed, whenever your mind goes bad, just say so. When you feel better, just say so. (laughs) If you love someone, just say so. When you feel you're getting angry, just say so. Do you understand? You don't have to go looking into the scriptures. Just so. Whatever rises, just tell it so. It saves a lot of time. (laughs) So I think the so is like the dehypnotizing, right? It's like so. Not getting lost. There's a, a Pali word, papancha, that means proliferation. And papancha is that tendency of the mind to take a little piece of information and then to just snowball with it. And uh, an example might be, let's just say, you're in the hall and you think, hmm, what's for lunch today? Or no, let's say, you're in the hall and you think, Sometimes they have bagels for breakfast. I hope they have bagels tomorrow morning. So you think, I really like bagels. It'd be really great if they they had them. But they never have cream cheese. I wish they'd have cream cheese with a bagel. That would really make it good. Or lox, as a matter of fact. Huh. Bagels are so great. I wonder when I get home, maybe I can take a workshop. I could learn how to make them myself. (laughs) And 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 then I could have bagels anytime I wanted. But, oh, I might gain a lot of weight. Maybe I shouldn't take a bagel workshop. Maybe, like, woodworking would be really cool. (laughs) I could make... (laughs) So you've gone from, like, I want a bagel for breakfast to making woodworking furniture for your house, right? That's papancha. It's this incredible creativity of mind. And in some ways it's great, right? Because many creative things happen out of papancha. And that was a, and the example I gave was fairly tame, but papancha also can get us into lots of trouble because we can create these, these huge uh, 
emotional worlds. I remember on my first retreat, I had this pain in my side sometime. I was convinced I had cancer. You know, I, that's what the papancha did. You know, I could go all the way there. It's really awesome how we believe our thoughts. Just think of your last sitting. Think of some of the things you believed in your last sitting. <laughs> Mindfulness helps us start to not take our thoughts quite so seriously, to hold them with, with so much more lightness. That's what freedom from thought is. It's not getting rid of thought. The freedom is, is, is not being um, c- captured by your thoughts or hijacked by your thoughts. Then they can just come up. It doesn't matter. They rise, they pass away. Not a problem. Unless we're hijacked and believe them. Mark Twain said, I've experienced many disasters in my life, most of which never happened. so thoughts labeling the thought being with it in the mind being with it in the body and then how does uh, labeling emotions being with it in body being with the mind how does the emotion change as we're with it this is also really important it's impermanence really we're trying to understand impermanence so when we're with the emotion, does it increase in intensity? Does it decrease? Does it change to another emotion? Does it go away? Sometimes there's layers of emotion, right? A couple weeks ago, I was, I was irritated at my partner. I, um, I needed to talk to him about something, and I knew that if I talked to him about it, he was going to get upset. And uh, so I was really irritated that I couldn't talk to him. That's how it felt like, right? It was like, and I was, and so I was kind of with that, just noticing that story and being with it. And then, then it dropped to another layer, and the layer underneath was fear. It was fear to risk his displeasure. And that level was quieter. It's interesting when you drop levels, it's quieter. It's almost you drop to the quiet level, and then you know what the truth of the emotion is. So the truth was, I was afraid. The truth wasn't that there was a problem with him. <laughs> you know, and then so I still brought it up and everything went fine. Um, that's just one example of the, the layers that we can go through. And then, then what's so important is the next piece. It's what is our relationship to this emotion? Is there acceptance, curiosity, willingness tolerance on the one hand or on the other hand is there reactivity is there a trying to hold on if it's a pleasant emotion a trying to push it away if it's an unpleasant emotion if there's reactivity what happens when you notice that what happens when you notice the trying to hang on let's say you're having a beautiful sitting it's like oh I finally earned this right I've been working so hard peace, calm, this is so great, how can I make it stay, <laughs> right? So there's a, uh, that's, a, that's the grasping. Or we're sitting here, we're restless, Ugh, going nuts, how can I, uh, I wish I'd settle down, oh, I just want this to go away. Uh, there's aversion, right, to that mind state or emotion. 
What happens when you notice that you're calm and you notice the hanging on? What happens when you notice the hanging on? Sometimes it just goes away. Yeah. And actually, then you can experience the calm much better than if you're trying to hang on to it. If you're trying to hang on to it, it's not so pleasant anymore because you're afraid you're going to lose it. Right? So what about loneliness? Feeling loneliness, wanting it to go away. What happens if we notice the wanting it to go away? So we just, we just explore that relationship. It's not, it's not to try to pretend that we don't want it to go away if we really want it to go away. If we really want it to go away, that's our experience. We open to that. What does it feel like to reject or exile our experience? What does it feel like when loneliness to come, comes up to say, go away? Explore it for ourselves. And then what helps us what helps us lean towards the acceptance of an emotion? We were talking about that in our in our group this afternoon. Feeling an emotion. I can't even remember which emotion the person brought up, but somebody was feeling an emotion and she was like feeling very hard against it. And we were talking about what helps that kind of transform that hardness against what our experience is to softness which is which is kindness our compassion one thing i mentioned is one technique that my teacher uses to help bring compassion when when she's suffering she says ouch you know, it's like, oh, okay, I can soften to this. Sometimes I just say, I care. I care. I care about this. And so we try to find what's the way into the softening of the heart. But sometimes we just want it to go away, and we can be real honest and just be there. Be there with wanting it to go away. Emotional honesty. It's great for meditation. So a big part of afflictive emotions is, is, is this increasing our tolerance for being with unpleasant emotions, the unpleasant body sensations, the unpleasant thoughts, the unpleasant contraction of the heart. And there's this progression from curiosity, which Greg was talking about a lot last night, from curiosity to tolerance to willingness to friendship. We're basically trying to learn to be a friend to ourselves. And so what happens is our spaciousness of heart and mind increases when we don't have to get rid of anything. We've made space in our hearts for all of our experience. And then difficult emotions, they, they decrease because they lose their power over us because we aren't reactive to them. They don't go away because we want them to go away. Have you ever have you ever managed to get rid of a afflictive emotion by wanting it to go away? <laughs> I've never found it successful. But but if but if the reactivity to it uh, uh, lessens, then we we see how all things are impermanent, including emotions. They arise and pass away. I'll give an example. So. 
Early in my practice, I worked a lot, as I said, with fear. And there was one particular fear that I found really difficult. I actually, a number of years ago, I, I did a talk on 13 kinds of fear that I'd experienced in my practice. I got the list up to about 19 now. Um, but the one that was particularly difficult was, uh, I called it the black hole. And it was this kind of fear. It was a, a mind state that I would fall into, an emotion that I would fall into. And it felt like I was spinning in outer space, all alone, nobody going to save me. And uh, it was very dark and very, just very terrifying. And so when this uh, emotion would happen, I would get lost in it. I would believe the story, right? And I would feel like I was going to feel that way the rest of my life. That's the other amazing thing about emotions. Uh, wholesome, positive, or, or afflictive. We actually believe that they're going to last the rest of our life. It's so mind-blowing, right? Because it's so obvious that that's not true. But when I would fall into the black hole, I really believed it, that it was going to last the rest of my life. And um, so the first thing I had to do with the black hole was learn how to get out of that place. This is really important when working with difficult emotions, really, the really difficult ones. We're not just talking about mild irritation, right? But the, the really difficult ones is you have to know how to get out of there. It's not safe to explore if you don't know how to get out of there, right? So the first thing I learned was how to wake up in the middle of the black hole, know that I was in the middle of the black hole, and get out of there. And so at first, I, you know, I had to a lot of this exploration was in my daily life, sometimes on the cushion, but a lot in my daily life. So, you know, I would clean the house, or I would call a friend, or I would watch a movie. I had a whole list of things that I would do when I needed to figure out how to move away from the black hole. And so after a while, I started to, to, to have confidence that I knew how to get out of there. And then when I had confidence that I could get out of there, then I actually could get interested in what is this experience? So I'd be in the black hole, I'd know that it was happening, and be like, what is this? You know? And it really was like being in outer space. It was like a black, endless nothingness. And, you know, and I would notice the kinds of thoughts that, that, that arose, that, you know, nobody, I'm, I'm all alone and nobody's going to save me, kind of feeling. So I learned how to actually tolerate being there in the black hole. And then, Eventually, what started to happen is uh, I, I still remember kind of one day I could see the black hole coming. You know, it was like it was almost like a little monster or something. I could see it coming, and I was kind of like, "Oh, hi, I know you." And it was kind of like the black hole went, "What?" You know, it was like shocked, like, "Huh? This isn't the normal way the game goes, right?" And um, and it didn't come. You know, it was just like, because I knew it so well, it's like I could see through it. And it, it, it was like it almost lost interest in the game. <laughs> I know that I'm speaking in a lot of metaphors, but... And then over time, it's like that just, just didn't happen anymore. And, and this took a while. To be honest, it took about 10 years to gain um, stability in it. It just might as well be honest how long it takes to work with these places, right? Um, it's not like I, I never had mindfulness in those 10 years, but it was like it took about, that was a progression of about 10 years before I really felt comfortable that I could work with the black hole and where it really had lost its power to hypnotize me, to take me over.
So when I say that there's no emotion that you can't get interested in, I mean it. It's like whatever our, and maybe some of you don't have a corresponding to the black hole. It, it, some of you probably do and some don't, but most of us have some emotion that's challenging. If you don't know what it is yet, maybe after you sit four days, you will. <laughs> so we learn how to go in and out. That's really important. It's really important with the, those that take us over to know how to go in and out. So if it's, an emotion's really intense, you can touch it for a very short period of time, like five seconds or ten maybe, and then go out. And then you can come back and touch it and go out. It's, that's how we learn flexibility. That's how we learn not to be hypnotized and taken over and hijacked. And then if we find that we're with an emotion because we want to get rid of it, it's really important to explore that. Because if we're going to be with our emotions to try to get rid of them, it's actually kind of aggressive towards ourselves. It's actually violent. So we have to really pay attention to that. Um, so sometimes we have uh, people will be sitting and they'll, they'll go, I know I have some emotion over the, under, and I just really want it to come up and I really want to feel it. But what they're doing is, 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 is like there's a foxhole and they're standing outside the foxhole, and they're like, come on out, little foxy. Come on out, I won't hurt you. <laughs> they have like a big baseball bat, right? And they're just ready. As soon as they come out, they go, wham! It doesn't work so well, because the fox is smart. The fox is no dummy. It's not going to come out. So we can, it's like we check our attitude towards towards these places that are so tender within us. And if there's this aggressiveness, just really notice that. Check it out. And see if you can back off a little bit. You know, take your baseball bat and stand about 20 feet away. (laughs) And maybe the little fox will come up and stick his little nose out for a little while. We have in Qigong, I, I, I study Qigong, and, and, and the type I study, we have something called the 70% rule. And the 70% rule is um, that you're only supposed to go to 70% of your capacity uh, with stretches. And when I first started uh, studying Qigong, I figured that that rule was for most people, but not for me. I'm a 100% gal, 110% right. So I thought, okay, I'll do 95%. And so I would try to do that, right? And at a certain point, it occurred to me that there might be a certain aggressive energy with that 95%. And I, and I tried backing off to 70%. And when I backed off to 70%, I started to feel. It was fascinating. It's like when I was at 95%, I wasn't feeling. I was trying to bypass what I was feeling. I was trying to go around it. So notice in our own experience with our emotions, I I think we can apply the 70% rule. Sometimes if we're putting 100% in, we're really trying to go around it or get rid of it or bash it with a baseball bat. And we can back up to 70% and see what happens. So practice doesn't mean getting rid of afflictive emotions. It means not being dominated by them. And they lose their power over them 
over us as we know them very intimately. We need to know them. Another part of working with emotions, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it's just realizing that all emotional experiences are impermanent. And just to be able, when we're in the middle of an emotion, to say, this too will pass, is really helpful. I use that with the black hole a lot. And I'd be experiencing the black hole, and I'm like, this will pass. Just to remember that. And then for the advanced practitioners, do this with wholesome emotions too. You're in the middle of a very calm sitting. This too will pass. Another level of working with emotions is to realize that emotional states are not me or mine, as we say in Buddhism. This is anatta, not self. That they're, they're, not, they're not what we are, you could say. This is a little hard to explain, but I'll, I'll try. On one level, a relative level, when an emotion arises, it's ours. We take responsibility for it. Anger arises, we recognize that it's our anger and we take responsibility for it. So that's one, one level. Thich Nhat Hanh describes it very beautifully. Uh, actually, I got this from Shambhala Sun, an article by Karen Mason Miller. She's talking about Thich Nhat Hanh as her teacher. She said, Thich Nhat Hanh teach, this is what Thich Nhat Hanh teaches when he suggests that we view our anger as a howling baby. No one wants to be around it but it cannot be ignored. Someone needs to do something about that baby. The baby is yours, and the only one who can do anything is you. However disagreeable that infant is, you pick the baby up and put it in your lap. Then you rock and comfort her and wait. You attend to yourself without judgment or blame. In this way, anger wears itself out. The baby goes to sleep. Someone needs to do something about that baby. The baby is yours, and you're the only one who can do something about it. That's the level of uh, the relative level of emotions and taking responsibility for our emotions when they arise. So that's true. But there's another way you could say the absolute level of truth is that what we call an emotion is an experience that arises due to causes and conditions, and passes away when those conditions pass. And it's really not so personal. I mean, have you ever had an emotion that no other human has had? I doubt it. There was a time I was sitting here in the hall, sitting right over there, I remember where it was, and I was feeling very lonely. And... um, I suddenly had this understanding that all humans feel lonely at some time. And that at that very moment, there were many people in the world feeling lonely. And it utterly transformed the experience for me. A sense of compassion and ease entered rather than loneliness and isolation, right? That's a little bit of the understanding that it's not personal. 
So it goes something from this is an emotion hardened in me to this is a universal human experience. It really helps ease that, that, the reactivity towards that experience. So we call this non-identification, this sense of spaciousness around experiences that arise. And the non-identification is, is not believing the stories and not taking the experience so personally. So identifying is the sticky factor. Identifying in Buddhism is the stickiness of the, of the emotion and non-identification is the spaciousness around the, um, the emotion. And so we, we explore that, this identification and non-identification. Both, both happen. We explore both of them. It's not wrong if we identify. We get curious about that. What's happening when we identify with an emotion? And then it's really important in this process to have a sense of humor. We can learn to find our mind rather amusing with the antics that it comes up with. Here's a story from Pema Chodron, one of her books, about a Tibetan yogi named Geshe Ben. She said, I think the best way to understand this approach is through the hilarious stories of the Tibetan yogi Geshe Ben. Whenever this eccentric fellow saw in himself any kindness or wisdom, he referred to himself as Venerable Geshe. When he saw himself getting hooked by attachment, he addressed himself as, you fool. (laughs) Once when he was visiting some patrons, Geshe Ben saw an open bag of barley flour hanging on the wall. He needed some flour, and when he was left alone, he unconsciously started dipping in. Suddenly, realizing what he was doing, he screamed at the top of his lungs, thief, thief, I've caught a thief. (laughs) When his host rushed in, there he was with his hand in the bag. Another time, the patrons invited all the monks for a meal. Geshe Pen was seated last. As the servers were doling out his favorite yogurt, he began to panic. What if there's none left for me? How can that big monk take such a huge helping? As feelings of resentment grew, he began to connive how he would move ahead of the other monks before it was too late. Then he realized with remorse what he was doing and patiently waited his turn. When they finally got to him, he put his hand over his bowl and yelled, No yogurt for this greedy fellow. This yogurt addict has already had enough. (laughs) So greed. Greed's one of the afflictive emotions. And um, yeah. One time I went out... uh, I have a couple of goddaughters. I have several godchildren. I have a couple of goddaughters, and I took one of them out for their one of them. It was her seventeenth birthday, and we got this uh, hot fudge sundae for dessert. One that we shared. I love hot fudge sundaes, right? So, at one point, I'm like trying to get a bite of ice cream, and I like unconsciously pushed one of the other one spooned out of the way, you know, and took a bite myself. And we just sat and laughed and laughed and laughed. Like, look what you did, Becca, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> look what I did, right? We can, when we, when we don't take it so seriously, you know, there, is, there can be a certain humor in it. 
Alright, it's getting light. There is a way when, when we become really familiar with our emotions that there's time for a firm no. So it's, it's, that can be part of the plan of not letting emotions hypnotize us or, or run us over. It's just to like, oh, not now, no, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'll tell one more quick story. Uh, a number of years ago, many years ago, before I started teaching, there was I would come to IMS sometimes and have lunch in the staff dining room. And the staff dining room is kind of the nerve center of the of the whole place, right? It's where everything happens. And I would see this certain woman there, um, and I thought I just kind of didn't like her very much. There was just a sense that I didn't like her. And... Then over time, what I started to realize was that I was envious of her. I didn't even know that at first. At first, it was just like, oh, I don't think she's very likable. And then it was like, oh, I was envious of her. She had, like, perfect relationships with the teachers and all these things that, like, I wanted, right? And um, so at first, it was like I could barely tolerate knowing that I was envious of her, right? And then over time... Like, I didn't come over here very often, so, you know, but when I was here, I would see the envy. And I, over time, I actually started to be able to feel the envy, to let myself experience what that was. You know, the deep insecurity in envy and the, and the craving in envy. And I, I began to get familiar. I, I, didn't, I hadn't known that I felt envy before that. So I was like, getting, let, let myself become really familiar and feel that experience. And then one time, I was standing in the lunchroom and she walked in. And it was like I had this, well, I call it a tape recorder, even though we don't use those anymore, but back then we did. It was like there was a tape recorder with the pause button. And it's like I could see my hand going towards play. (laughs) And I knew exactly what it was going to say. It was like I knew the whole story. It was like a highway. I'd been down so many times. I knew, you know, exactly how it was going to go. I could see it in a flash. And then this voice was like, no, I don't want to do that to myself. And I didn't. So it wasn't aversion to envy. That wasn't what was happening in that moment. It was compassion for myself. It's like, I don't need to make myself suffer like that. And, and I could do it actually because I had been so intimate with envy that I had let myself really know that experience. And then over time, she became a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And then one time she sat in this hall on a retreat. I taught with her, and she, she, she gave a really nice Dharma talk, and I felt really happy for her. This took about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see her that often. <laughs> so, um, so go easy on yourselves, okay? Mm-hmm. So what happens with this ability to, to be with afflictive emotions, to meet, to meet our lives, really, the full, the full glory, the joy, the sorrow, the happiness, the pain, all of it, is that we really, we develop faith in ourselves. We develop trust in ourselves that we can meet life and that we can meet life with an open heart. 
Trungpa Rinpoche says, do not be afraid of who you are. It's really important that you understand this. Do not be afraid of who you are. Through this process, we learn not to be afraid of who we are. And we learn not to be afraid of life as it is. This is the deepest gift we can give ourselves because it means that we can go through life open-heartedly, that we can be touched by life and we can touch life. We can be connected, we can be here, we can be present. So I'd like to end with a story from uh, After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry by Jack Cornfield. And this is a story of a Buddhist teacher. We don't know who it is. An anonymous Buddhist teacher talking about awakening. In many ways, the spiritual transformation of the past decades is different than I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and ways of being. So that on the outside, I'm not that amazingly transformed, enlightened person I had first hoped to become. But there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and temper have softened the way I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformed and my love has grown larger. If my life was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into the furniture and judging myself, now it's like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left open. I've got the, I've got the old stuff there, yet it doesn't limit me like before. I'm the same, yet now I'm free to move about, even to fly. That's it for a minute or two.